We're going to end this series today. We're t- we've been talking about um, we've been talking about why and how important this word is, how important the meaning is behind everything that we do. We started talking about how uh, how what your why has to be big enough to cover every disappointment you encounter in life. How many would agree that there's a lot of disappointments in life? I mean, if you haven't had any yet, buckle up because they're coming because that's real life. And if you haven't had any yet, you know, good for you, but. Maybe you need to get to know somebody who has so they can help walk you through these things. We talked about the fact that God's love is the most important foundational why of all. And if you have that why settled, that you know he loves you, cares about you, if you know that he is the one who thinks about you, you are actually literally on his mind, then that can help you through all those big disappointments. We talked about the fact that he's given us grace, and that's why we can give grace to other people. We talked about the fact that there's times we just want to know where we're going and we want to know why it's not easier. We talked about connection to him comes before direction from him. We talked about why church, why do you exist as a group and why do you come together and why do you continue to come together and get to know each other and disciple and and learn and and work through problems together. Today we're going to talk about me, not me, but you, me. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, why me? Have you wondered why me? Ever? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you've been going through something in life and just wondered, why me? Maybe for you, you've looked around and thought, man, I, I, I have it tougher than other people, or I have it easier than other people. Or maybe you've wondered, just why, God, does it work out this way each time? Why do I have the struggles I have? Why am I so weak in them? Why is it that I'm... I struggle with the same sin over and over and over, and other people don't seem to have that struggle. Why is it that God made me the way he made me? Why me? That's a big question. It's a question that you really need to figure out in Christ, and you need to have settled to be able to handle the things that come at you in life. And when you have that settled, it's amazing how other things seem to fit together. What I'm going to do today is we're, we're going to go on a, on a trip. We're going to start at Matthew and go all the way to Exodus and then all the way back. You ready? That's a big trip. If you know your Bible, that's a lot of books in the Bible. That's a lot. I was going to say 66. It's not all 66, but it's a lot. So let's do this first. Let's go to the book of Matthew. We're going to go to the end of the book of Matthew. At the end of the book of Matthew, think about what has already transpired in Jesus' life. He's lived his life. He's had his public ministry. And in that public ministry, think about all the miracles that he, he did during that time. The people he healed, feeding the 5,000 raising the dead, walking on water. There was amazing things that happened. But he didn't do that without adversity. There was adversity at every step. Everywhere he went, there were people saying, I don't believe in him. Yeah, I just saw him raise somebody from the dead, but I think we need to kill him and the person he raised from the dead. Get rid of him. Because they were shaking the foundations of what they believed and taught. And here he was, you know, I think they were also jealous because Jesus had so many followers and they did not. And people were saying, he teaches way different than the current religious leaders. He teaches with an authority like he wrote it from the beginning. Like he created all this stuff. He's different than them and that bothered them. So as we're getting to this part of the story, when we get there... He's already been killed. They've already, the Romans already gave the Jews the, the authority because the Jews on their own didn't have the authority to kill, so the Romans did it for them. They crucified Jesus on the cross. All of that jealousy and hate had already been there, but Jesus rose from the dead. 
Just as we talked about, just as Pastor Jeremy was talking about at the end of communion, he already paid that price. He'd already done that for us. He'd already established the fact that no matter what was thrown against him, he was above and beyond all that. Nothing could hold him down. No grave could contain him. No, no petty jealousy of religious rulers could, could hold him back. None of that was going to keep him down. He was triumphant over all of those things. And then he's going to give his last kind of marching orders to his disciples, his followers. And he tells them these things. He says, I have been given all authority in, he- in heaven and on earth. That should have been firmly established in their minds. They're looking at the risen Savior. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What we're going to do today I didn't plan this, you know, originally when we were planning this sermon series, I wasn't thinking about the fact that it was going to be this sermon on a Sunday we're celebrating communion. Fits so well. In the church, we have two ordinances. We call them ordinances that we celebrate. One is communion, which we just did, where we, just as Pastor Jeremy said, we celebrate the sacrifice Christ made for us. We celebrate his broken body, and we celebrate his spilled blood in in the symbolism of the juice. Today, we're going to look at something totally on the other side, but started at the beginning of his ministry. And he says that he wants us to baptize all of these people. So we celebrate baptism. And he says that he has the authority, and that's why he did it. How many of you have been baptized? Just curious. All right. We do have a baptism coming up, by the way, at the end of April, a month away. And there's five Sundays in April, so it's quite a ways away. But it is coming. The reason we do that is the symbolism showing that you've died to your old life and raised again to a new life. That you proclaim in front of everybody that you're a Christian, you're a new person, a new creation in Christ. I don't know about you, but I was baptized at a young age. I was baptized, I think, around 10, maybe 11, but young. And I meant it. I knew what it meant. I'd been in church my whole life. I'd, I'd already responded to different altar calls at the, at the altars, you know, confessing my sin, telling people I wanted to be a Christian, and I, I was new. Does it, does it mean that I was perfect from then on? No. Some of you said that a little louder than you needed to, but the fact is, we make a confession and a profession of our faith in baptism that we don't often live up to the rest of our lives. There are going to be days where you make decisions and do things they make it seem like whatever you did, I'm pointing over here because that's where our baptismal area is, that, that what you did in baptism wasn't real. So what was it? Was it just a formality, some religious ritual we do? Or does it really have meaning? I mean, why do we do it in the first place? Jesus said to do it. He said to be baptized. He said in that verse we just read. He was baptized. We follow him and all that. So what is the meaning behind this? When does it start? You know, there were baptism rituals in other religions But baptism for us as Christians goes all the way back to Exodus. There's a picture of what's happening there that we celebrate all these years later. There's a picture happening there which we symbolize, which was symbolized way back in the book of Exodus. So now we're going to time travel all the way back to the book of Exodus. It's a really interesting story. And you've, you've all, how many of you have seen The Prince of Egypt? Remember that cartoon that came out years and years ago? How many of you have seen uh, The Ten Commandments? You've seen... You know, Charlton Heston and all that. The thing is, though, for a lot of us, because we have the whole Bible, sometimes we forget when we look at a story like that, 
what the people right then and there were really experiencing. It's difficult because it's, 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 it's so difficult for us to separate what you already know. You, you know the whole story. But if you could imagine with me how this all takes place. God promises something to these people. He chooses a people. It starts with Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And remember the story, right? And then Joseph, the coat of many colors, and he's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. There's a famine that affects the whole known world at the time. Egypt, has, God has, has miraculously created a storehouse there through Joseph. So Jacob takes all his sons and their families. At this point, most of his sons are grown and have their own kids. But they're not a nation yet. You realize that? Now, God did change Jacob's name to Israel, which is what we're familiar with. And he did say, you're my chosen people. And he had a plan to to tell us all about who he was through these people. But if you look at them right then and there, it's not a nation. There's no army. All they are is just a really, really big family. You've got, you've got Jacob called Israel, his two wives, their 11 sons, and then all those children, and they go into Egypt. Then what happens? Generation or two later, the Bible says they forget about Joseph. And probably what happened is they are multiplying. The Bible says that they multiplied, and we know by the time they came out of Egypt, there's close to 2 million of them. But at some point, they're multiplying to the point where the, the Egyptians start to look around and they say, we've got these people living here. They're radically different than us. We know from that early story in the book of Exodus that they, they kind of looked down on them because they were, they were shepherds. You know, they had beards and the Egyptians shaved. And I mean, there was a lot of cultural differences. And they were separate from them. And they didn't worship the same gods as Egypt worshipped. And, you know, Egypt had all these fancy gods. And Pharaoh himself considered him a god. So it, it makes sense that at some point they would get worried and say, if we get attacked maybe from the outside... Who's to say these people who are living in us, among us, who are separate from us, might not side with the enemies? we got to do something about this. Plus, they needed some cheap labor, so they forced them into slavery there in Egypt. How many know how long that lasts? 400 years. Our nation is just a bit over 200 years old. None of us can remember back to Lincoln or further back all the way to Washington and the, the founders of the country. I mean, you, you may have family ties that go that far, or you may have maybe even gone to you know, Washington, D.C. and looked up relatives or whatever. But, but ultimately, for us, it's hard to even imagine a world without the United States, right? It's hard to imagine a world without, without this kind of freedom that we enjoy today. Think about 400 years being a slave. 400 years where you're told you're not as good as the other people. 400 years where you don't get to make the decisions about what you're going to do with your daily life. There is no freedom for you. Can you imagine what that would have been like as those people, that's all they thought was that all there was was just what my parents did and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents. 20 generations. It's a long time. What would that do to your mindset as a people? Somehow during those 400 years, God kept them intact. He kept them as an, having an identity as being different and separate. And we don't know. I mean, you think about this for a minute. They had no Bible. Hard to imagine, isn't it? There were no books of the Bible written at that point. All they had was these stories that were passed from generation to generation to generation, 20 generations. There was never a thought that they could be different or they could be free or they would have their own nation. 
And think of the nation that they lived in. We see the remnants of that nation still today. You've got the pyramids. You've got the huge statues. These people that they were enslaved by had a, had a civilization that is still, uh, is still a marvel today. And what did they have? They were Bedouins. They were, they were nomads. They were travelers. They were shepherds. These people built cities and civilizations and giant monuments. Here's something we don't often think about. You know, we look back and we, we refer casually to Egypt's gods. But did you ever think that if you were the slave for 400 years and you had been told about Abraham's God and Isaac's God and Jacob's God, your God was those distant ancestors' gods, but you were enslaved by Nubus and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh God. Who, who's God stronger? What would you think? Wouldn't you think Egypt's gods are stronger? Because they're the ones enslaving you. I mean, who is your God after all? It's not even your God. It's your ancestors' God. And in the middle of all that, don't ever forget, God had a plan. He had a plan for them all that time. And he never forgot them. He never forgot them. And as somebody was praying for deliverance, and maybe all of them were praying for deliverance, I don't know. But all I know is the Bible says that he heard them and he had a plan. He had chosen this people, and even though it didn't look like he was working, he was always working. Never forget, he's always working on your behalf. No matter what happens in your life, sometimes, you know, it's your fault, sometimes it's other people's fault, but the fact is that we serve a God who still has a plan, and he's working the plan. And no matter what you've been through in life, none of you have been through that 400 years. What would your identity even be? 400 years, but God had a plan. And as you read the book of Exodus, and especially right there in the beginning, you'll see that God had this special plan, and he had someone in mind that he protected and at that time, the, the, the number of the Jews, as I mentioned, had, had, just, had just exploded up to two million Jews. And the Egyptians were again getting afraid and, and feeling a threat. I mean, what if there was a slave result, revolt now? What would they do? So they told the midwives, start to kill those baby boys. As they're born, kill the baby boys. And the Bible says that Moses' parents hid him away and put him in the basket and the Bible says he pitched it on outside and inside and put it in the river Nile and then trusted God had a plan. And as that little baby floated down the river, his older sister Miriam watched him and then he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And then this is just how God is. Miriam says, hey, I happen to know a Jewish mom who could nurse that baby. Yeah, Moses' mom. I don't know if you remember that part of the story, but she adopts him as her child. Moses' mom weans him, raises him, gives him to her. So think about God and all his, his brilliance. He has this baby Jew raised in the house of Pharaoh, taught how to administrate and lead a huge nation as Pharaoh's grandson, as Pharaoh's daughter's baby. Then after 40 years, he, he ends up you know, seeing the oppression of his people and he separates a fight and kills an Egyptian, then he flees into the desert, then he becomes a shepherd. Who were the shepherds? The Jews. He learns all about his people and how to lead shepherds. Then God calls him, and he sees that burning bush that doesn't burn up, and he has an encounter with the God of the universe. And the God of the universe introduces himself again to Moses in a way that Moses could relate to that's different than just saying, 
It's my 400 years distant relatives, God. He tells him. Because Moses says, who's I supposed to say is sending me to free the Jews? And imagine what he's thinking through here. He's thinking, I can't go to Pharaoh and say, it's Jacob's God's people is telling you to let him go. I mean, what? He don't care. He's not going to care about that at all. Instead, what God tells him is who he really is. And he, he tells him, tell him the I am that I am. The eternally existent God who, who has no beginning, needs no beginning because he existed from time eternity and he's always existed. He's saying I am, not just I am in the present, but I am. In other words, I exist in the past. I exist in the future. I am outside of time and space. I am the God of all gods. He had to teach Moses that he's a God beyond some statue made of gold, even though the statues would be 30, 40, 50 feet high. I'm a God that is greater and bigger than this God of Pharaoh who's enslaved your people for 400 years. Sometimes we need to get a different picture of who God is. Because we look at who we are and we wonder, why me? And the only why me we can think of is the why me that we live in and the the power structures that you live under. And maybe right now it's nowhere near to be compared to slavery, but but you are in slavery in some sense to some system that you, you, you chafe at and you think, God, this is too heavy for me to bear and I don't know why I have to do it this way. And it might be a, system, a situation at work. It might be something at home. It might be something going on with your kids and you think, God, why me? And you forget who he is because you start to look at how big your problems are rather than looking at how big he is. And God needs to reframe that for you. I was talking with somebody this last week and they need that reframed in their mind. And we joked about the fact that they need to see a burning bush. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever asked God, God, could you just let me know I'm here and you're there and you know where I am? Somehow, something. I need something. I need a sign. Well, Moses needed a sign and he needed a big one. Because what he was being asked to do in the, in the eyes of the world was complete, utter foolishness. To go into the court of Pharaoh, having been already a wanted man, having been raised there, and then to confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know we've all seen different movies, you know, and I, in my mind, of course, I'm old enough. I think of Yul Brynner as that Pharaoh, and he's looking at it, and he, he looks, and, and this is what God says for Moses to tell him. Go to Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son and I want him, and I want him out of here. <laughs> you know what God wants you to hear today? That you're his firstborn son. You are his firstborn daughter. I don't care if you're the baby in the family or the middle child or any of that kind of thing. God wants you to know that he is God. He's bigger than your problems, and you matter to him. So when you say, why me, inherent in that question is, why am I dealing with this? And inherent in that question is, why aren't things different for me? And what you need to hear from God today is that he loves you, he cares about you, and you matter to him. Regardless of the situation, none of that matters. What matters is who he is, and he's bigger than all that. I guarantee you, when Moses stood before Pharaoh, we don't know exactly the words he said. Sometimes when I see the way Hollywood depicts you know, our Bible stories, I'm just frustrated, like, oh, that's kind of silly. You did this, and you had this artistic license, and you kind of ruined it. But regardless of all that, the fact is, when he stood before Moses, I'm sure just this would be the way I would say it. I'd be like, what, are you kidding me? What, are you joking? 
I'm going to give up all of our labor, our free labor, and let them go to serve a God. Who is your God? I'm greater than your God. I've got your people under my thumb. My, my forefathers have had your forefathers under their thumb. 400 years. Have you seen what we've built and you want to just walk out in the desert? Are you kidding me? I mean, he had to just chuckle. God knew that. God knew that, but he had a plan. God knew that, and he knew that the people of Israel who had been slaves needed to have their whole identity changed. How do you change a people's identity 400 years of that kind of slavery? Maybe you live in a life, and in your life, there are things that have been happening in your family generation after generation after generation. Maybe it's something you feel like it cannot be broken. Maybe it's a It's a a way you've handled money and it seems like everybody's in debt over and over and over. Maybe it's babies born and there's no dad or or that's into chaos and you think it can never change. I'm here to tell you today, we serve a God who changes those things. He does. And even though you've lived in this kind of a cycle over and over and over, he's a cycle breaker. And he needed to break that cycle that was in their minds. And I think the biggest one that he needed to break was who they thought he was and who was in charge and who was God and who was greater. So what he did is he started to send these horrendous plagues on the people. And we look at those plagues and some of them, you know, it starts with turning the blood into water and, or water into blood. And, and, then, and then there's lots of them. I mean, there's frogs and then there's, there's flies and, and there's boils and there's hail and there's darkness. And we look at some of those things and we think, how silly was it that they didn't respond? But here was what God was doing. It was, it was more than just trying to shake their faith in whatever was around. What they were doing is each one of those plagues were actually an attack on Egyptian gods. Egyptian gods that have been set up to be, that they had said that these gods are greater than your God because you're slaves and we're not. And we worship fly God. And we worship a frog God. I mean, are you, I know for us, we look at it and we think it's silly. But that was their reality. And how would they have even had the tools to argue against that? Because they were slaves and their parents were slaves and their parents and their parents and their parents and 20 on. How do you argue against that? The way you argue against it is you show that the God of the universe is greater than all those things. And each time when Moses would walk in and Pharaoh would say, okay, okay, you can go worship your God. Just tell, the, tell your God to make the flies stop and the flies would stop. Tell your God to make the darkness stop and let us have light again. Because even then there was light in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived, but no light in, in Egypt. You know what that says? That means that somebody's walking outside and they're looking over into into the main part of Egypt and they're like, whoa, it's dark over there. Our God's greater than them. That gold isn't gleaming anymore. That statue of Pharaoh is darkness. We used to be able to see it during the day because it would just glint light. We could hardly look that way. He's not powerful, all powerful. Our God is. He had to start switching the way they thought. So it all ended with the final thing. Remember he said to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn son. And you probably know the final plague was the death of the firstborn son in all of Israel. I mean, pardon me, Egypt. And that night there was wailing and crying and Pharaoh calls God and, or Moses into his court and he tells him, okay, fine, fine. Just take them and go. Get out of our land. Get out. And as the Israelites are leaving, they, the Bible says that they were told to ask their Egyptian you know, um, slave owners and on and on just for gifts and they just piled them down with things and they left. 
Think about the freedom they felt. Think about the exaltation. Think about all that. And they're marching out. It had to be exciting. I mean, they're leaving, and they're going to go worship God. And think about the dust. I, don't, I think about that sometimes. I mean, I, it, there's no pavement, and there are two million people, and they're trying to get them all organized, and they're heading out. And they get out of Egypt, and they, they're coming up, and then God leads them on a way. He, he even says at one point, he goes, I, didn't, I intentionally did not lead you by all these other cities because you would, you would have been confronted with battle, and you would have been afraid, and you wouldn't know how to fight. And he leads them up to the shore of the Red Sea. Have you ever had something promised to you and then at the last minute it's yanked out? Do you know that feeling? Deep in your gut where you're just like, oh. I mean, it's a, it's a huge disappointment, right? Maybe you've had something promised to you and something you were planning on and it's gone. You don't know what to do. And the disappointment you feel, it's, it's almost a mixture of anger and frustration and what am I going to do and questions and you want to say what why me right what made it even worse for the Israelites is they're looking at the Red Sea in front of them they don't know what to do and then they look back and they see another dust cloud theirs had already settled but they see another dust cloud and someone from far for someone looking way away they say you know what those are chariots what's going on what happened is Pharaoh changed his mind, and he sends that powerful army after. It was the greatest army in the world at the time. The Jews had no army. They had nothing, none of that. They had no way to fight that army. So in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is that army. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? I'm sure more than one of them said, why me? What did you bring us here? In fact, they say to Moses, what did you bring us here to just die in the desert? We'd have been better off in slavery again. For some of you, maybe you're saying, how could you ever go back? Why would you even think that? The thing is, here's what happens. You know the story. I just put this picture up because that's the one I remember. But God parts the Red Sea and they walk through it. And as they walk through, they're looking back I want us all to just imagine this. You're looking back and the army's following and you're thinking, oh, come on, God, what are you going to do? Why'd you leave it open for them? And we don't know. Maybe some of the Israelites were still in there and the army got in. I don't know. And then it closes over the army. The final, the final fist on the top of their gods, on the top of them. There is no army that's going to fight you and win over who I've made you to be. Now what do they have? Freedom, freedom, freedom. Oh, man, what do you do with freedom when you've been a a slave for 400 years? Here's the problem. We look at this as a picture of baptism where you're brought into freedom. You've been redeemed. Do you see how this foreshadows our freedom? You're brought through these waters of baptism and you're, you're brought through, and it's, it's all done, and there's freedom, but freedom isn't free. <laughs> These people needed to learn how to live in freedom. They weren't used to that. They were used to being told what to do here and there, and they were being used to having other people make their choices, and all of a sudden, they had to make their choices, and it wasn't easy. Anybody remember that first time when you move out the house, and you realize, no one's going to do my laundry. I got to do my laundry. And I don't have any change. And the laundromat only takes quarters. Do you remember that? Do you remember how it is when you realize 
I could cook like five things, and that's it. And I'm tired of those. What am I going to do? Do you remember what it was like when you got those bills and you thought, I'm on my own. That's right, I'm on my own. These are my bills. Sad because they started rebelling and they started to ask to go back to slavery. And they started to say things like, at least there we had good things to eat. And at least there we always had water. And God continues to try to show them, I'm your provider. I'm your God. And he gives them water from a rock. And he, he sends them ultimately manna, which is, is some kind of bread that was super nutritious. Manna literally in Hebrew means, what is it? Because it was strange and new. And they would gather it up. And it, they, the Bible says it tastes like honey and bread together. And eventually that got old. And they complained. And he sends them quail to eat. And they eat that. And that gets old. And they create an idol. And I know some of us are sitting here thinking, how could they do that? Except for we do that. We've all been baptized or, or at least given our lives to Christ and yet we go back and you wonder, how can you do that? It reminds me of this scripture in Second Peter. He says, they prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit and another says a, a washed pig returns to the mud. If you're not familiar with the pig thing, I'm sure we're all familiar with the vomit thing. It's gross, isn't it? You're like, get away from me, dog. You just, oh my goodness. Then they try to lick you with that mouth. You know, a friend of mine, um, he, his son wanted a rabbit. So he bought him this rabbit. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen with pets, but, you know, you're going to take care of it, right? All right. You're going to feed it, right? You're going to clean the cage, right? Kid, what do kids say? Yeah, 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 of course. And after a while, you know, the, I would never keep a rabbit in the house personally, but anyway... What happened was the kid wasn't taking care of it, right? And after a while, it kind of got old to him, and it wasn't friendly. And if you've raised rabbits, if they're, if they're not handled a lot, they can be pretty mean, and those claws on the back are vicious. And I know it sounds weird if you didn't know that about rabbits, but... So the dad said, if you're not going to take care of this rabbit, I'm just going to let it go, because this is gross. It's not even fair the rabbit lives in this kind of filth. And it's sad, but true, but the kid's like, okay. So the dad was telling me, he said took the rabbit out in the back, and where they lived, they didn't have a fence in the back, and it's just they opened up to woods and property, and he thought, what better for this rabbit than to have freedom, right? And just live with all the other wild rabbits and make more rabbits. That's what they do, right? So he said he opened the cage, and um, <laughs> have you ever tried to get an animal out of a cage? <laughs> he didn't want to get out the cage. So he said he kept trying to get it, and it kept going back into the back and burrowing really tight in. He's like, well, fine, fine. I'll just leave the cage open, and you'll go out on your own. So he said he came back in an hour, and he was still in the cage. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. Why aren't you, why aren't you walking in your freedom? So he said, I finally, I thought, i got to get this thing out of this cage. So I got a long stick, and I started poking it from behind, and then it did go out of the cage. You know, it ran out in the cage, ran about 10 feet away, and I thought, finally, He's out. You know, go, go, go. Enjoy your life. And he goes, I don't want to touch that cage. He goes, I thought, ah, I'm going to get a hose and wash that thing out. And so he walked back, and then he came back with a hose, and guess what? He was back in the cage. He was back in the cage. Why would he go back in the cage? It's all he knew. It's all the Israelites knew. It was 400 years of slavery. Freedom isn't free, and it's not easy, and when God takes us and changes us, he changes us, but it's something that, that we have to still work with. 
And when he changes us, it's hard not to go back to the old ways and the old gods and the old habits. And it's kind of like you... It's kind of like your own house in a way where I was reading this the other day. It's just, I'm a dork. I read stupid stuff. But there's scientific reasons why you don't recognize the own, your smell of your own house. I thought about it today as I was in my office. And there's some stuff on my floor that I put there like three months ago. Why is it still there? Why haven't I cleaned that out? Why haven't I got rid of that? You just get used to it and you stop noticing it and it's just part of who you are and you put up with it over and over and over and it continues to deteriorate and, and you're not free. Your freedom's been purchased, but it's, not only is it not free, but it takes some work and it's tough. That's why jumping back to Matthew, the angel tells, tells Joseph, she will have a son and you're to name him Jesus for he will save their people from their sins. Jesus meant, Jesus, the name itself means the Lord saves. And what does he save us from? You're supposed to say sins. Here's a real interesting twist. God does this all through scripture. Sometimes it's with numbers. Sometimes it's with names. Like Bethlehem is house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. He he does this stuff all the time in the Bible. Look at what he does here with Jesus. Jesus is born. He's going to be the savior of the people from their sins, right? So then what happens right after Jesus is born? Remember the the wise men went and told Herod, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Herod gets freaked out, goes to the religious rulers. Where's the king of the Jews going to be born? They tell him in Bethlehem. So then what does he do? He tries to kill them all. Kills all the little baby boys there, right? So the angel warns Jesus' parents, Joseph, in a dream. And where does Joseph take him? Egypt, really? We're going back to Egypt? The Savior's going back to Egypt. So he goes back to Egypt, then he comes back out of Egypt, and he's the Savior of the world. God does these twists all the time. He's born a deliverer. Moses was born a deliverer. He comes out of Egypt. Moses came out of Egypt. He goes through the waters of baptism, and Moses brought the people of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus' baptism, it says... After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, settling on him, and the voice of heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity we see right there. So what's the point of all this today? The point is we're in bondage too. We're all in bondage to little choices we make that draw us into a life of sin and sometimes it happens so gradually and casually we don't even notice sometimes it's fun things that we experiment with or try sometimes it's us masking pain but ultimately those things lead us into a life of bondage again and we need deliverance you may be standing there and thinking it's not physical slavery it's not but sometimes it's way more insidious and more vicious because we don't even notice. And it creeps up on us and it becomes part of who we are and we just keep hopping back into that cage. We have freedom. I mean, it's so weird. Like, why, why can't we be free of these things? Why does it happen over and over and over? And just like those people of Israel, we need to realize who God is. We need to realize that we're his son, his daughter, And he came to save us. And we need those things changed. You may be saying, why me? 
Why me? You know what the why me is? The why me is because you're a son or daughter. I'm turning that to a positive thing. Why me? Why did he come to save you? And Why does he put up with the fact that we keep going back to our sin? Because you're a son or daughter and he knows who you are and he knows our frailties. And he wants to deliver us from those things and he will do it. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, Pastor, I've never even been baptized before. That's all right. We have a baptism coming up at the end of April. We'll baptize you. The fact is, though, that we need to walk beyond that. We need to live beyond that. And there's going to be times you're not going to live up to that. But we serve a God who is faithful and just. And 1 Corinthians 1, pardon me, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he sets us free again. It's like you cry out to him from the cage and he says, then get out of the cage and I'll help you live free. And we're telling him, God, please just take the cage away. The rest of that whole verse in in 2 Peter 2 says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. You are a slave to whatever controls you. Should be like on a fortune cookie, huh? You ever think of it that way? What is controlling you? Is it anger? What is controlling you? Is it gossip? What is controlling you? I could list a lot of sins that are way worse, right? We could just list them and list them and list them, but I don't have to because one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of whatever it is for us. Because invariably, if I were to list everything, I'd miss something. The fact is we're all on a different level of this and we all need freedom from this. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they'd never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Why me? Because you're human. That's why you. And we all struggle with this over and over and over. Why me? Because he came to redeem you. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason he came. The whole reason we celebrate not only communion that celebrates his death and then also his resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter, but it's the whole reason we do baptism because it celebrates the the symbolism of us. We, We put people under the water as if they're dying to their old life and their old sin, and then we pull them up because they're raised to new life in Christ. And the challenge is for us to always live in that. Is it easy? No, you should all be saying no. I, no doubt it's easier for some of you than others. I know a lot of you who are way better people than I'll ever be. And, and I look at you and I'm in awe and I'm grateful for that. But I also know that as good as you are, everybody struggles. We all struggle with this freedom because freedom is difficult. Freedom is not free. We all need times of confession. We need times to be held accountable. We need to be in this relationship. We covered a little bit when we talked about why the church last week, where we need brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking this road together, and we need to help each other out of that cage sometimes because we slip into the cage. We need some people to say, your room smells, and you didn't notice. That's awkward, isn't it? Awkward. It's not going to happen, though, if all you do is come to church and mingle with people for five, ten minutes. We do that thing we do right in the beginning. We hopefully see someone in the lobby, on the lobby, on the way out. That is awesome, but it's not enough. We need more than that. We need these connect groups. That's why we're trying to start more connect groups so that you have more opportunity to connect with people. 
Pray with me about that. I'm looking for leaders. We're looking for places. And I'm excited about the new ones that are starting. We need more of that. It doesn't end there, though. Bless you, whoever sneezed. Why you is good. It starts with that. But never forget the why them part. You ever heard that, us four, no more? Shut the door? I just heard the shut the door part not too long ago. I thought, wow, that's even worse. Us, more, us four, no more, and then shut the door. That's not how it is. The fact is, there's a lot of people trapped in a cage, and there's people who don't know who the real God is, and you need to help them see who he is. You need to help them see who he is by the way you live your life, and when they see you live in freedom, they're going to want that freedom. Now, they're not going to understand it first, and it might be offensive to them because the enemy's so good at masking, and the sin looks so fun, and they're like, but the truth is, as you show them that, and then the next thing is you including them, and then you inviting them. It's one of the great things, the reasons we do, like, for instance, the Ironman life group that we do. One of the reasons we do that is because we know that a guy might come to that who might not come to church any other time. That's the whole point of it. Knowing is not enough. We have to act on it. Just being willing is not enough. We have to actually do something. I want to encourage you to invite him to church. We have a really big holiday coming up. I mentioned it a minute ago. What is it? Anybody know when it is this year? April 16th. Wow, you're way ahead. Good for you. It's like a month away, right? Something occurred to us this last week, and as we had a board meeting Thursday, and it just it, it occurred to us in the staff, and then it occurred to us in the board. I'd love for the worship team to kind of make their way up here as I'm talking about this. This is the day. Easter is the big day. That's the day more people come to church who don't normally go to church than any other day. So have you ever thought about this? When you're inviting guests into your house, what do you do? Who said clean up? You clean up, right? <laughs> have you ever wondered afterward, why don't we do this every day? Why isn't it like this all the time? You know, like you live in a model home or something. But you clean up, right? That's why we try to keep this building nice because we're going to have guests. What part of the house do you really pay special attention to? The kitchen, living room. I heard someone say the bathroom, right? Don't you? Well, it occurred to us, we're going to have a lot of guests walking into our house on the 16th. I mean, that's our plan. That's God's plan. That's how he does these things. And we want you to invite them. But I don't know if any of you have noticed, but these main bathrooms, they've been, like, they've, we've, they've been basically the same for 13 years now. And we felt like, you know what, they need kind of a makeover. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to give toward that project. And if you wanted to help with that project, our goal is to do a makeover on those before Easter. Is that too ambitious? <laughs> I think we can do that. And I, I think we can make it a place where people will come. But beyond that, I want us to do this for a minute. I want you all to shut your eyes. And I want you to think about some things with me. We've kind of been back and forth all the way from Matthew to Exodus and back. And there's a few times where I specifically said, why me? Maybe you've been sitting here today and a few of those times you said, yeah, why me? I don't know everybody's life situation here. I, I know a lot, but I don't know everybody. I don't know what it is you're dealing with. Maybe somebody here is, is dealing with a marriage and you're frustrated you don't know what to do. You can't seem to get it back or get it right the way it needs to be. You want to blame the other person and they're blaming you. And maybe it's something where you're looking at it and you're saying, why me? Maybe for somebody here, it's, you feel like you're in bondage at work. 
Maybe it's a home situation. I don't know what it is. But you're in bondage in a situation and you need to be free tonight, today. Anybody raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me right now. I'm in bondage to something and I need freedom. I do see those hands. More importantly, God sees those hands. Let me ask a similar but different question. I bet somebody here is feeling like you're in a cage. And you realize it's filthy, but you need out and you want out. And you're struggling because you feel like you just keep going back there. And maybe even before you walked in today, you didn't see it that way. But one of the other things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin. And he speaks to us specifically about what areas that he needs to work on and change to make us more like Christ. And if any of you have something like that that you need him to work on, raise your hand just for a second. This is just a step of acknowledgement between you and him. And I see a lot of hands going up. He sees those hands. I'm going to take us one step further. You know people who are in a cage like that, who desperately need the freedom we've been talking about today. And maybe for them, they're totally unaware. They they would almost be like that Pharaoh and say, what are you, joking? I'm not going to live like you. I like living like this. Let me just let you in on a secret. The God who loves you and calls you his son, calls you his daughter, thinks the same of them and he wants them to be free more than you could ever imagine do you have anybody like that that you know that we need to be praying for and maybe they're the one that you would invite to see our nice new bathrooms on a sunday in april do you know somebody like that if you do raise your hand for a second see those hands one last question this is most most important question maybe you've been sitting here this whole time and you need to actually give your, your, you need to be washed in that water, all that symbolism we talked about with, with the baptism. And you need to be free and you need to invite Christ into your life for the very first time. You need to be completely free today because you need to give him ownership over your life. Anybody here like that today? We could pray with you today about that. Do you want to give your life to Jesus today? Anybody at all? I'm pausing just because I want to give time for someone to respond because I feel like there's times where we hurry and all right would you stand with me we're going to open these altars up for prayer I I would love right now if the board staff wives prayer team wives everybody would just come down and be ready to pray with you if you would like prayer for any of those things maybe it's a struggle you just you're having trouble with and you want somebody to stand in prayer with you maybe for you it's some kind of a a need for healing or something else that's going on in your life and you just would like someone to stand in for prayer. Maybe it is about a marriage or something like that that you would want us to join you in prayer. I invite you to come and let us pray for you as the worship team leads us in a song. And if you're standing there and, and maybe for you it's somebody that you're thinking of right now that you really want to see free, that you just start praying for them every day. We'll pray for them every day as we head toward this, this Easter celebration. So come now as we pray.